Paul writing to Timothy, and it's a familiar verse, most of us, many of us at least, have committed it to memory. He says, and the things which thou hast heard, or the things that thou hast heard, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Kind of file that verse away. We'll come back to it here in a minute. Let's pray and get into it. Lord God, I just want you to do something tonight. I feel weird, Lord. I feel like I don't know how to approach this message. I feel like my feelings are a little bit all over the place. And it's in moments like these that I'm so glad that my feelings don't mean a thing. You are going to do something. And I need you to just adjust me and put me where you want me to be in it. If it's your good pleasure to do something that's markedly unusual tonight, I sure would appreciate that. But even if we don't perceive that, Lord, we know that your word doesn't come back void. So help it to find good ground and to do its work in us. Please be with us, we pray, and help us as we, uh, as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I've always carried a certain burden, but it just seems like this school year, it has increased in multiplied ways. I'm greatly burdened for the young people of this generation. Our church, if we, if we reckon a generation is about 40 years, which I would actually say it's, it's not that long. People are having children, you know, in their early 20s now. Um, but if we reckon a generation by 40 years at a time, Our church is about 20 years shy of entering into its third generation. Though we know that we have many more than three generations within this church, even now. It's a burden that pastors and and, and Christian people have carried all throughout the church age. But I'm just especially burdened for our young people. I think social media plays a role in that because it makes it much more easy, whether you want to or not, to know what kids are up to. You don't invite it. There's so much of it I don't want to know. But when you see kids that maybe used to go to this school, used to go to this church, living in the ways that some of them are. I don't sit from a sanctimonious throne thinking I'm better than them and thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this public. And God knows my heart. That's not at all how I see it. I'm heartbroken. I did some research. Back in 2019, Lifeway, the Southern Baptist Publishing Group, 
did a survey, did a study. What they're talking about, they call them Protestant churches. What they mean, they would count themselves as part of the Protestant uh, perspective. I personally don't. Um, I think a Protestant is somebody that protested the Roman church and came out of the Roman church. I'm not a Baptist brighter, but I just believe Baptists have always been around in some name or form. There's always been people that were Bible believers that didn't get into the, the Roman way of thinking. Again, I'm not a Baptist brighter, but I do believe that the Baptist, at least Baptistic doctrine has been around since the beginning. And so I think what they mean is maybe we could use the term evangelical, churches that present a gospel of faith, grace through faith. This would exclude Catholicism and the cults and things like that. Sixty-nine percent of teenagers attended these churches regularly when they were 17, juniors and seniors in high school. But when they turn, nine, when they turn 18, that falls to 58 percent. When they turn 19, it falls to 40 percent. And by the time they're in their 20s, one in three will attend church with any regularity. If those statistics hold true in this ministry, and I thank God that I don't think they will, but if they were to, on any given Sunday, the young people that you see around, two-thirds of them will be missing after they graduate. That is not only heartbreaking to me, it is unacceptable. They ask them why. This is interesting to me. The largest percentage of them, 34%, stopped coming to church when they went to college. Now, there are churches that have built entire ministries of reaching college kids on college campuses. It's not for a lack of opportunity. I believe it's the influence of colleges. I'm going to tell you something. Higher education, there's nothing high about it, and there's nothing educating about it. Now, I'm not against higher education in principle. I think if God opens the door for somebody to get a college degree to train them for that which God has called them to do, I'm all for that. But if you're going to sit here and tell me that the vast majority of these colleges are nothing but atheist factories, that's what they are. Most colleges are hostile to everything we believe in. And it's one of the reasons we're losing the culture war in America. Tenured professors that are spouting off all kinds of foolishness. Yes, it even happens at my beloved University of Virginia. Maybe more so than other places. Slightly less than that, 32% said they left because other church members were judgmental or hypocritical. Now, let's be honest. Let's be fair. Some people, that's a cop-out. But for some, it's not. 29% this one rings a little more true with me didn't feel connected to other church members you don't make connections unless you try to 
And it is so easy to walk past, and I'm guilty of it, y'all, to walk past somebody, you've got something else on your mind, you're, you're thinking about something differently, and you walk right past somebody and don't, don't connect with them in any meaningful way. That happens after a few weeks, and they're not coming back. We need to be on purpose about this. We need to connect with people on purpose. This next group, I think, ties into the college scene. 25%. Stop coming because they disagree with the church's stance on political or social influences. This speaks to the cultural influence. This means our young people are listening to their college professors and they're listening to their TikTok influencers more than they are the Word of God. And we've got to address that too. 24% stopped coming because they were prevented by work responsibilities. Now, there are times in which people have to work during church times. I understand that. And I have never been one to beat people over the head about that. But you know as well as I do, there's a lot of people out there that work has become an excuse to not be at church. And we need to be super careful. I am all for our young people having jobs and learning responsibility and learning to work hard. But when we teach them that lesson to the exclusion of being in God's house, we're in trouble. I'm sorry, flipping burgers is not as important as knowing Jesus. This study was very interesting. There was a lot going on in it. Of adults surveyed ages 23 to 30 who attended church regularly for at least one year in high school, 31% attend twice a month or more. 31%. 39% attend once a month or less. And 29% do not attend at all. One would have to believe, just given the trends from 2019 going into COVID and now coming out of COVID, that these numbers are worse. COVID did nothing to help church attendance. By the way, you understand, when I say church attendance, I'm going back. We understand church attendance isn't what gets it done. People need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay. And so that leads me to the title of this message and the question with which I am wrestling. You see, every class, that, that, that every time we, we finish up a school year, I really hone in on this. Because the reality of it is some of them won't be back. It could be one year somebody graduates. It could be the parents pull them out and put them somewhere else. Please understand Granted, it's not the only place for a good kid to go and get a good education. And you're not ungodly if you don't go to Granite. I understand that. But the fact is, every year, there's parents that pull their kids out of here and schools like this one for all the wrong reasons. There's parents that fail to emphasize in their children's life the importance of being involved in the local assembly of God's people. And so here's the question with which I wrestle. Am I doing all I can for the next generation? This ties into what we talked about this morning with Hezekiah. Hezekiah reached a point where he was so frozen, so cold, that when he was told that the next generations were going to be carried away into captivity and enslaved, his response was, well, at least it's not in my day. 
Y'all, we have got to take responsibility for what comes next. I don't want to just pastor you well. I want to pastor your kids well and their kids well, even if I'm no longer here. I want good decisions that we make today to echo in coming years. Because what we're building now is what they're going to inherit. And I want to leave them with everything I can, every resource, every opportunity to succeed. And I'm really burdened about this. I want to quickly move through a few things that I think we need to consider. First of all, we need to consider the matter of Christ-likeness. Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Philippians 2 verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus said this in John 13, 13, you call me master and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Can we agree just from these three passages, and certainly there's plenty more in the Bible, that it is the highest responsibility of a Christian to be like Christ. But here's where we fall short on that. These kids are watching us. Not just these kids, people outside of this church are watching us. What are they seeing? Are they seeing people that are ensnared by the world and the devil and their own flesh? Or how about this? Maybe it's not that noticeable. Maybe you're striving to be like your favorite preacher. Or you're striving to be like your favorite politician. Or your favorite entertainer. Beloved, there is but one metric that measures my faithfulness. How much am I endeavoring to be like Jesus? And everything that that entails. What this world, and specifically our kids and this next generation, desperately needs to see in us is genuine Christ likeness. I've mentioned this before. Your kids, up until a certain age, and even even past that to some degree, but especially when they're very young, they don't yet understand God and theology and all of that. And so their clearest picture of who God is is in your example, especially the father. And, And I've had to come to grips with, man, there were times I gave my kids a pretty sorry picture of God. Patch the Pirate, years before he died, wrote a song about his dad. Here was the title, I Saw Jesus in You. I can't think of a more wonderful thing to hear as I'm on my way out of here than for my kids to say, Dad, I saw Jesus in you. Christ-likeness. Something else we need to think about, and that's the matter of consistency. If I'm going to do everything I can for the next generation, I've got to be consistent. Easy preaching, hard living. 
If consistency was easy, we'd all be consistent, wouldn't we? But it's not. Sometimes we, we seek to do some of the right things, but we do them in a haphazard way. Sometimes we're, we're up here, and sometimes we're down here, and sometimes we're over here, and sometimes we're over here. And I get it. The human experience, it can throw us some curves. But, y'all, we have got to find a base level of consistency that we hold to for the sake of our, our testimony. We must pursue a life of consistent Christianity. We've all known people like this, that they come into church Sunday morning, and they're the godliest people you've ever seen, but you get them in a back room at work. You get them out on the lake. Different person. By the way, kids sniff that out quicker than anybody. You might can fool me, but you will not fool your kids. Again, What do I want my kids to be able to say about me? He was the same Christian at home that he was at church. He loved Jesus at home and on vacation, just like he did behind the pulpit. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable. That sounds like consistency to me. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. James chapter 1, verse 6, But let him ask in faith, talking about getting wisdom, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he will receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James is saying we need to be consistent. There's a matter of Christ-likeness. There's a matter of consistency. You know what else? There's the matter of carelessness. Usually, this has been my experience, usually it's not that a parent or an authority figure endeavors to do wrong or to teach kids to do wrong. That's usually not what's going on. It's usually that we got a little careless. We stopped being vigilant, particularly in two areas. First of all, we stopped being vigilant in our own hearts. Parents, we don't just have a responsibility to be vigilant for our kids. We have a responsibility to be vigilant for ourselves. Proverbs 4.23, keep, that means guard, thy heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. And then when we don't keep our hearts and we get careless with our hearts, it finds its way into our homes. 1 Peter 5.8, we saw this this morning, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Can I remind you of something we talked about? I don't know. It's been a few months ago now. Nobody should be surprised by the devil. Devil. Do you know that? Why? First of all, he walketh about. He's not creeping. He's walking. He's not running. He's walking. He shouldn't sneak up on you. Especially when it says he walketh about as a roaring lion. If you've ever heard a lion roar, you know that that's a giveaway. And yet he walks and roars, and we get careless, and we don't pay attention, and that's how he gets us. So there's the matter of Christ-likeness. There's the matter of consistency. There's the matter of carelessness. Now, what I want to spend a little extra time on tonight is something that is near and dear to my heart. And I think this is, this is where we really maybe miss it, and that's the matter of coaching. I'm not a coach anymore. 
sadly. I'm now a consultant, but I make much more money as a consultant than I ever did as a coach. Additionally, I don't have to come to all the practices, so that's really nice. That gets us to our verse, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. This really is the heart of coaching. And by the way, who can you think of that's a better example of coaching than Paul? Paul coached some people, didn't he? He coached Apollos. He, uh, he coached Titus. He coached Onesimus. He coached Philemon. And more, more than anything, we see him coaching a young man named Timothy. And this, this really comes down to what coaching is. 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things that thou hast heard among many, of me among many, many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Part of, part of what we're, we're doing with, with Brother Thompson being here is we're coaching him. I don't believe that God means for him to stay here forever. Well, God may, but at some point, he believes God's called him to pastor. So I want to coach him up. The things that you've heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit out of faithful men, maybe he'll teach others also. That's what we're after, right? Now, take your time, Foster. Don't run out of here, okay? But, but still, And when you look over the years at great coaches, and some sports lend themselves more to needing coaches than others. You know, golf has coaches, but at the end of the day, that golfer has to go out there and execute. By the way, Charlie Woods, if he's not the greatest golfer ever, I don't know how he isn't, because who's his coach? Tiger? His daddy? So if he's not the best ever, then he, he came, came short. You guys have swing coaches and things like that. Even in baseball, you have managers that, you know, they use a little strategy and they do that. But, but really, managers are not as actively involved in every little thing that happens on the field like football coaches are. They're, they're calling in plays. They're realigning defenses. But I think for me, basketball is, is the one that, because coaches are constantly fussing and fuming and yelling and hollering and throwing stuff and, you know, and all of that, all through, the, all through the game. And I think of some great coaches. People may disagree with me. For me, as far as basketball, I don't know how you say anybody's a better coach than John Wooden. My soul, John Wooden, wow. What a coach. By the way, he's a Christian, too. My favorite story about John Wooden was told by Bill Walton. Bill Walton was this big, lanky hippie and uh, went on to play for the Celtics and the Trailblazers and some others, but he played for Bill Walton's UCLA team. And Bill Walton had a rule. It'd be clean-shaven to play for him. And Bill Walton came to him, and he said, Coach, I'm a grown man. He said, You are indeed. He said, I can be drafted. He said, You can indeed. He said, uh, I'm held to every other adult standard. Yes, you are. I think, that, I think that I have a right to grow a beard. Coach Wooden said, I agree. He said, you do? He said, absolutely. And we're going to miss you on the team. <laughs> Bill Walton was on the bus the next day, clean shaven. And if you've ever seen pictures, 
John Wooden was not a big man, not in physical presence anyway. But there's certain things that make up a good coach. And no, I'm not saying that I'm a good coach, but good coaches, you see some things about them. And I want to try and play that into our role for the next generation. First of all, you see discernible authority. You can discern that they've got some authority on that subject. It's reasonable to think that a coach would be an authority on that sport, that they'd know some things. Have you ever been around a team that they couldn't find a coach, so they just put a warm body out there that didn't know anything about the sport? Oh, it's hard to watch. It's tough. Let's say this is not going to happen, okay, unless God wants it to. But let's say that Granite had a field hockey team. I don't know who we'd play around here, but I can tell you who's not going to be the coach of the field hockey team. That'd be me. You know why? I know nothing about field hockey. Nothing. Nada. I don't know that I've ever sat down and watched more than a couple of minutes of any field hockey. Is it a game? Is it a match? I don't even know that. I just know they got weird-looking sticks and they hit each other. If a kid's going to listen to the coach, it needs to be discerned that that coach knows what he or she is talking about. Can I tell you something? We cannot teach this next generation what we don't know. Our kids are looking to us for answers. And I'm happy to help in any way I can. But please understand, the default answer is is not go ask the preacher. Our kids are looking to their parents. They're looking to their mentors. They're looking to us for the answers. And unfortunately, many of us have demonstrated over the years that we don't have them because we don't know. It's not my business to know field hockey. It's my business to know the Word of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.11, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Philippians 4.9, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Paul's not being, Paul's not being prideful here. He's living a life that demonstrates that it's discernible that he knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's doing. Because he's walked with God. Peter told us in 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We have a responsibility to demonstrate discernible authority. We need to know what we're talking about. Some more big words for you. A good coach not only has discernible authority, they have diagnostic acumen. What do I mean by that? They're good at showing you what you're doing wrong. Now, that shouldn't be the only thing you do. It's got to be balanced. But a good coach is able to spot what a player is doing wrong. Sometimes very quickly. Sometimes because if you don't fix that at the beginning of a game, they're going to kill you all game. you got to fix it. That coach is of no value if he or she is not willing to tell that player what they're doing wrong. 
Well, I would. I mean, to, to, be, to be honest with you, to be honest with you, you know, I've been watching Kristen the whole game, and, and, and I'll tell you why her shot is off. Her shot is off for this, 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 and this reason. Well, why don't you tell her, well, I don't want to hurt her feelings. Then I'm not a coach. Now, there's a right and a wrong way to do it. You stink to high heavens. What's wrong with No, that's not what you do. But, but we've got to be willing to say what you're doing wrong. Now, here's the problem. We've got a whole generation of parents that find it difficult to be honest with their kids and say, this is not the right way to do this. In fact, we see it, we see it spill over into sports. You make a correction, you do something different, and here comes mama, here comes daddy. I don't like what you did there. Teachers, correct a student. Little Jackie, little Susie, who's never done wrong, despite all evidence to the contrary. Folks, we've got to be willing to say, this isn't working. You've got to do it different. But you know what we want to do? We want to choose the path of least resistance. Oh, it's just not worth the hassle. And you do that enough times, and your kid is lost. Paul, go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul does this. Paul calls Timothy out. Boy, it starts out really great. Verse 5, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee. Hey, Timothy, man, your faith is second to none. And by the way, there's, there's some wisdom to that. Spurgeon used to say, when you shoot an arrow, dip it in honey, it'll slide in easier. Okay. But then, where does he get to? Verse 6. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God. You've let the gift that God gave you kind of settle at the bottom a little bit. You need to stir it up. In what area in particular? which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. What's he saying? Timothy, you're letting fear get control of you, and you've got to knock it off. Fear is going to kill you, Timothy. It's going to kill your ministry. So what's he do? He's diagnosing a problem. What do I have to do with my kids periodically? I have to diagnose a problem. There's an attitude problem. There's a laziness problem. Before you think less of my kids, all of your kids got the same problems because all of your kids' parents have the same problems. My kids inherited their problems from me, and your kids inherited your problems from you, right? But we've got to be willing to diagnose it. Do you know what I found? It's a curious thing that a lot of parents, and I've heard this from a lot of parents. Well, I just don't feel right about correcting them about something that I always did. If you know the effect that it has on you, that ought to make you want to correct it all the more. Can I give you an example? Sometimes I'm hesitant to tell my kids they need to eat right. Why? Because evidently I don't. 
But do you know what? That doesn't stop me, and I'll tell you why it doesn't stop me. Because I don't want them to end up like me. I don't want them to constantly feel bad about themselves. And I don't want them to constantly be hobbling around like I'm 97 years old because I'm carrying too much weight on my bones. I don't want them to know what it is to be pre-diabetic and everything else that I've got going on. I want them to live long, healthy, joyous lives in service to the king. So yeah, call me a hypocrite if you want, but I am going to tell my kids, you need to watch what you eat because you don't want to be like this guy. Because appetites, once they're cultivated, can be suppressed but rarely destroyed. So they better cultivate the right appetites now. Paul diagnoses fear in Timothy's life and coaches him accordingly. Great coaches have discernible authority, diagnostic acumen. You know what else? They have a disciplined approach. I love coaches with systems. And you know what I like more, especially in the pro ranks? I like when a coach has enough of a backbone to tell a bazillion-dollar player, if you don't play within this system, you're out of here. I love that. I love it. Now, there's an argument to be made that Tom Brady won all those Super Bowls. But I'm going to tell you this, Tom Brady doesn't win all those Super Bowls without Bill Belichick's system. Think what you want about the University of Alabama. But Nick Saban has won a whole lot of national championships with mediocre quarterbacks. Why? Because of his system. A disciplined approach. Nothing great is ever accomplished without discipline. And Paul makes this clear to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. I got news for you, young people. You want to do great things for God, at some point you got to put your phone down. Hey, moms and dads, at some point you got to put yours down too. At some point, we have to cut the TV off. And this is becoming more and more of an issue. I'm not against video games, but fellas, Xbox needs to be secondary in your life sometimes. You know? A disciplined approach. Hebrews chapter 12, you say, you talking about Paul? Yep. Because Paul wrote Hebrews, we all know that. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. He's saying to set aside sin, but also things that aren't sin but are holding us back. That's discipline. You see, great coaches have discernible authority. They have diagnostic acumen. They have disciplined approaches. You know what else? Demanded achievement. Those of you who are educators, particularly in the public schools, know that there is a a strong urging from the powers that be to produce equity instead of equality. What's the difference? Equality is an equalness of opportunity. Equity is an equalness of outcome. Now, I'm going to tell you a little secret. Not every kid's an A student. And we shouldn't make them one if they're not. What, what do we expect here at Granite? Do your best. And if your best is a C, 
Praise the Lord for that C. Okay, do your best. But there's a lot of people that they, they curve it this way and they take off over here, so everybody comes out of this thing the same. It's not right. At some point, we've got to demand achievement. It's not wrong to demand excellence. Great coaches expect their players to produce. How much do we really expect of these kids that are in our charge? Because honestly, sometimes we look at them as though they can't do anything. Asher's in this phase right now. Wants to get carried everywhere. Why? My legs hurt. And I know he's in a growth spurt. They do hurt. But no, son, you're four, almost five years old. Guess what? You can walk. I expect you to achieve. You can walk. We have never gotten on Claire about a grade that represented her best work. It's the ones that don't. But do you know why we have a hard time demanding achievement of our kids? Because we're really not that motivated to do anything ourselves. Nothing great is ever accomplished. I'm sorry. Um, how much do we really expect for our kids? First and Second Timothy, if you just read the two books, it is full of achievements that Paul is demanding of Timothy. Do this. Be this. Get this done. All through both books. Let's, let's pick one. First Timothy 1.18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. Can I tell you something? Our kids are capable of great things. We've got to be willing to nudge them. But if we expect nothing of them, then they will rise to that every time. Now, you understand that all of these things have to be done in the right way and in the right timing and all of that. Discernible authority, diagnostic acumen, disciplined approach, demanded achievement. But what it really comes down to and the most important element of coaching this next generation is this one. Demonstrative affirmation. Now, what in the world does that mean? The greatest hallmark of an outstanding coach is to appropriately communicate that they love their players. Now, I said appropriately. Because you can, with the best of intentions, communicate love in a weird way. There's an appropriate way to do it. I realize I'm a little biased. I realize I'm somewhat of a homer. But in my view, one of the greatest coaches to ever step on a football field was Joe Gibbs. Joe Gibbs coached the Washington Redskins, the Washington football team, the commanders. He coached the Washington Redskins. Okay. Who coached the commanders? Nobody's coaching them right now, apparently. You talk to most players that played for him. Even guys, Joe Gibbs is a Christian, okay? Even guys that didn't share his faith, almost without exception, you know what they'll say? Joe Gibbs cared about me, cared about my family, cared about how I was doing. That's, that's almost a universal thing. 
And if we're going to demand achievement of these kids and have a disciplined approach and diagnose when they're doing wrong and, and exert authority on them, we better make sure we do it having demonstrated affection and affirmation in their lives. There's nothing wrong with an attaboy here and there. How effective are we at communicating praise and love to the kids that are in our charge? God has really, really been working on me about this, both in my home and in this ministry. One thing I've never wanted to be is I've never wanted to be the kind of pastor that if I show up on the school side, somebody's in trouble. Because that happens in Christian schools. You don't see or hear from the pastor until it's really bad. And then he comes in with his pastoral authority and, oh, I've never wanted to be that guy. But sometimes we have little pockets of time where it just seems like all the kids want to be in trouble all the time. And sometimes Aaron gets so tired swinging that he calls the bullpen. And I come in and throw a few pitches. There's going to be a lot of that next year. Because I've got a little boy that thinks school is him having the run of the place like he does now. He's going to be all for school until he realizes he just can't get up and come to my office whenever he wants to. You pray for Mrs. Ware. You lift her up. You fast. Whatever you got to do. She may give up education altogether. So what do I try to do? I try to find stupid, silly little ways just to appear and find some way to make sure these kids know I care about them. Sometimes I feel like I'm successful. Sometimes I feel like they just see me as this weird goob. This just needs to go away. I'm telling you, teenagers, I don't get it. Sometimes you think you're really making progress, and then sometimes you, you try to, you know, reach out to them, and they're like... I'll just go back to my office. It's true of my kids, too. If all they ever hear from me is everything they're doing wrong, guess what? It's not going to be long before they resent me. That's why sometimes, after school, me and Claire just go do something silly, something fun. I don't even tell her mama. Why? I want to know I love her. I want to know I'm proud of her. You just don't know what it would do for these kids every once in a while. Just pull them aside and say, you know what? I really appreciate that you sing in the choir. I really appreciate that you're going out on Wednesday nights. I really appreciate the things I'm seeing in your life. Now, they're going to look at you like you're crazy because they don't really know how to process that. But you know what they're going to do when you're not looking? I've seen them do it. I've walked up to one of them before and gave them a compliment, and they just looked at me like, and I stepped away, and I watched them, and they're like, all smiley. 
Listen to what Paul does, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son. Was Timothy his physical son? No. Oh, this means he led him to the Lord. He almost certainly did, but I don't think it's just that either. I think there was a father-son relationship there. So Paul could get on him about being afraid. Paul could get on him about other things that he needed to work on because Timothy knew that Paul loved him. So what? Athletic history is, is, is littered with players that had all kinds of talent. But they never amounted to anything because they didn't have any decent coaching. And before you say it, no, I'm not talking about me. I lack two things from being a professional baseball player. I lacked opportunity and I lacked talent. Other than that, I'd have made it. I'll be honest with you, I'm partial. I look at the kids of Fellowship Baptist Church and the kids of Granite Christian Academy, and I see nothing but limitless potential. I can see it. You know what they need? They need some coaching. Now, the f- ultimate responsibility of that falls on the parents. Which isn't a, it takes a village kind of situation, okay? They're your kids, not mine. And I would not dare usurp the authority a parent has in their child's life. But at the same time, y'all, it wouldn't hurt for us to rally around our parents and help affirm what they're teaching them. Let people know, you know, your mom and dad, they're not crazy. We believe that too. And stand behind them. And coach one another up. And then what, what a wonderful thing it's going to be. Aaron, when, when, when I'm 74 or whatever, how old are you? 40. You're that far behind me? Okay. Well, let's say at 62, you've had it. You're just done. And, and, and you're so tired, you're not even going to move. You're just going to retire at 68 or 62 and just stay here. Okay. Now, by then, you'll have bought your own place because you can't live in the parsonage indefinitely. But you're 62, and I'm 70, and the Lord has let me go according to plan. I've hit 35 years. I'm 70. That's it. We've handed the keys off. It is going to be so fulfilling for us to watch people that we coached, that we invested in, take the baton and run farther and faster than we ever could. But we don't get to experience that if we're not willing to put in the work now.